Hey, Martin, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, how's everything uh, been going for you lately, working from home, all that? Um, it's surprisingly productive. Yeah. You know, I think you can kind of fall into one of two camps. The, oh my God, what's the world going to look like? Um, and then you kind of spin your wheels on, on prognostication and speculation, or I'm, I'm more inclined to kind of get down to brass tacks to say, okay, this is the future. Uh, we're living it right now. How do we, how do we help yeah. in the day? And then that leads to tomorrow. So I don't know, maybe, maybe working as kind of an, in the innovation kind of advisory world prepares us perhaps with a, a stomach for greater ambiguity. So totally. been okay. And our, and and I'll get into this in a second, but recipe for tomorrow is uh, is a 100% virtual. So we actually built it with the notion of not having a a central space. Um, central space is is you know Zoom, it's Google Docs, it's uh, it's Basecamp. Very cool. Yeah. Before we're, uh, there's a couple things there that I think have been uh, common across a lot of conversations I'm having. But uh, before we get into that, why don't you just do a quick intro of you know who you are, your background, what recipe for tomorrow is, and uh, what you guys do? Sure. So I'm. Um, my name is Martin Williams. Um, I've been uh, in the innovation uh, space as a kind of operator, commercial lead with PL responsibilities for, uh, I guess, the first half of my career for ten years. So you know, marketing responsibility, PL responsibility, product development responsibility, and the last ten years have been working more as a advisor. So advising Fortune 1000 companies on how to grow organically through, you know, the creation of new products, new services, new experiences, new brands. And so I kind of call myself a growth partner. It's what it says on LinkedIn, at least. Um, and ultimately, it's in the, in, it, you know, this is in the, uh, you know, in the service of growing a business, growing a brand, growing a uh, share um, that not only, you know, helps shareholders, but helps a greater community. So recipe for tomorrow is the newest kind of, uh, you know, iteration in, in, in the last kind of 20 years of being, you know, a, a entrepreneur. Um, and it is a food and beverage launch pad, innovation launch pad. And what we mean by that is we partner with food companies of all sizes and scales. So from fortune 1000, all the way to the startup community to help them grow through uh, the deft deployment of innovation. So how to innovate, where to innovate, why to innovate, and then ultimately, what are the things you're going to innovate? What are the products? What are the services? So we provide strategy, you know, the strategy kind of advisory, where should you play? And then we've got the kind of invention mentality, the design mentality is to kind of create the products and services around how to win. And then we've got the operational um, expertise. Most of the people on my team are kind of like me. They've been operators and consultants, mm. not one or the other, to actually make the thing real. And so we've got deep experience actually making things that people value. And that includes all the considerations around how are we going to make it and how are we going to make money? You know, coming from a design thinking background, naturally we keep humans at the center of that. But often the you know the questions of of commercial feasibility are left to the end. We kind of bring those up to the front to say, knowing that you know people want, need need to want it or at least desire a part of it. Knowing it needs to fit strategically, but you also have to answer the questions of how are we going to make it and how are we going to make money, right yeah. up front before. And I'm guilty of this too, man. Like falling in love with an idea and then trying to like shoehorn it in. Yeah. Um, try to answer all those questions up front. So um, we're less than a year old. 
Um, and our mission is really explicit and it's on our masthead and it's everything that we talk about, which is make food better and make better food. And that includes kind of beverage. So make better, make better food and beverage, make food and beverage better. And better is, is very deliberate in that it's better from a nutrient density standpoint. It's better from a cost standpoint. It's better from a profitability standpoint. It's better from a ecological standpoint. It's, it's better you know, kind of full stop. And so if we can't, if we can't show a direct line of sight to our mission, then we don't work on the thing. Uh, I was just about to ask, is that a lot of, um, you know, is that the type of innovation that these big food and beverage organizations are doing? But it sounds like that's exactly the kind of route that they're going, in, which is great, yeah. promising. Yeah. I mean, if we, if we look at um, conventional foods, and I mean the stuff that you would, you know, conventionally see in the center of a grocery store, right? Those are growing at, depending on the data you're reading, between one and two percent year over year. Whereas natural, and I use that parenthetically, foods are growing at between five and seven percent year over year. So those are historically better for you foods, right? Mm -hmm. um, GMO, organic, free from. Um, pasture raised, grass raised, these, these types of, you know, attributes, right? So there, I think the, you know, the, the human landscape has spoken that there's a greater demand for better. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is all super interesting. And I feel like we could go in so many directions with your, <laughs> we your think so, man, yeah. it's our business, right? Your philosophy on design, the, where you play, like all of that stuff is really interesting. Um, but also the grocery sector right now, um, which is, I guess, the main sales channel for a lot of food and beverage organizations, must be exploding in activity. So are these organizations still leveraging innovation or are they kind of just reacting right now to supply chain issues? Um, it's a really good question. And I think it's probably a question that a lot of our clients and a lot of our partners are asking themselves, whether they're, you know, direct to consumer portals or their grocery retailers, mm -hmm. you know, the big how questions um, are the ones that are most salient. How are we going to get food into people's hands mm -hmm. it, that, that, you know, and, and I think paramount to that. And, you know, you've seen, if you've been to a grocery store in the last four weeks, you've seen a lot of, of initiatives taken by food grocery retailers that, they're trying to protect their frontline staff, knowing how vital and critical a service it is, right? If, if, if we have a broad portion of the population that contracts COVID-19, that are those that are stocking shelves, that are those that are driving trucks to get supply, we've got a real problem. And so, you know, I'm really uh, heartened to see a lot of the investments that, you know, the Loblaws and the Sobies and the, um, and the Longos of the world have made to keep their, their, their um, frontline staff safe. And I'd say that's a how that's like, first, let's protect our people. And then let's think about how to get people into stores and out of stores safely. Um, and so I would imagine a lot of conversations around supply chain, we had this conversation yesterday internally where food buyers right now, and, and, and that's a you know very common term, you're a buyer of a category are no longer necessarily buying, they're more thinking about strategic supply, how do we get the things we've bought to our store? How do we continue to refresh so that we're always in stock? Toilet paper was the first, but you can go to the meat counter to see, you know, out of stock. So, you know, the buyer role right now has shifted more to a how to get things onto shelf role. Now, I imagine that's going to flip back at some point because 
you know, their progress is progress and people always demand newness, right? right. Whether that's uh, a new attribute on a product or a new product altogether, um, it will switch back. But right now it's all about the how, mm. you know, how do you get people who are most at risk in and out of stores, right? And so we've seen, you know, hours dedicated to seniors and people who are immune compromised. I think you're going to see that go even further. I mean, why wouldn't you allow an 80-year-old to shop first, just generally? Yeah, totally. They, they paid their dues. My neighbor, a perfect example, my neighbor's 85 years old, um, has been, you know, he's com- like, he's spry. He is um, as, as uh, healthy as anyone I know. But he's like, this is great. I didn't have to line up. I went to the grocery store. I got all my stuff. I was in and out in 10 minutes. Um, feel great. This is what they should do all the time. They really should. That's an interesting uh, observation and maybe an interesting thought about the future and how things might change as well, just socially. In the space that you're in, what are some of the big challenges that you're kind of seeing from uh, from your clients? Well, I'd say it's twofold, right? Because we work in the world of kind of large enterprises. So yeah. a lot of our advisory work is there, but we also work in the startup world. And let me start with the startup world. If you're a new brand, right? And you don't have broad awareness. Maybe you've started your digital kind of campaign. You're working with influencers. A lot of brands rely on sampling. Mm-hmm. Right? Either right. as like in-store, you walk by someone sampling product or they're, you know, they get, you know, preferential kind of um, merchandising in-store. You walk by and you're like, oh, what is that? that? That's gone away. Like, I don't know about your behavior online shopping, right? But when I'm buying my groceries online, it's not about discovery. It's yeah, not about uh, it's not about the um, the impulse of like oh shit I needed that one other thing sorry can I curse yeah uh, of course <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's about like I it, this is a task this is a thing I need to do to ensure I have food to feed my family and so I think for brands that are in the startup world that are just starting to build their business or build their awareness that's really tough um, how do you get your product into people's hands not only to drive trial. But ultimately, you know, every, every brand is thinking about throughput. They're thinking mm-hmm. about terms because mm-hmm. you, can, you can have the best, most incredible idea that people try once and then never try again. And you're going to be in and out of the grocery stores quickly. So driving trial, you're seeing some things mm-hmm. like I have to give credit to there's a company called BioRaw. Um, they make uh, salad kits amongst other things. And they've done this sampling program where they're including other b- newer brands in orders. So you have that kind of serendipity you have that moment of discovery you open up your salad kit or your 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 multiple salad kits for the week and you're like oh wow look sapsucker who you know there's a full disclosure a good friend of mine is the the chief exec there amazing tree water but i wouldn't have necessarily know where to find that if i'm just clicking a a menu digitally but now it's with my salad or um kite is another brand of sparkling kind of adaptogen um beverage like these are things they're including and i wonder if there's a, like an ecosystem play around that idea of trial as as the idea of walking a grocery store and stumbling upon product goes away that's the startup side yeah i would say um on the on the side of the big uh brands um i think it's more around what happens next you know, there's been, there's been, and I, you've probably seen some of the data, right? Like big brands are winning because people under, people know them, right? That it's mm-hmm. unaided awareness of like, I know what a nature's Valley granola bar is. I've seen it. I know the masthead. I know what the brand looks like. I pull it up on a logo or on a, on a menu digitally. And I get what that thing is. I understand mm-hmm. what it tastes like. Um, I think it's about like, what's next? How do you ensure that you're delivering product benefits 
that are meeting people where their new needs will be. Because mm-hmm. functional foods before all of this was growing at roughly 8% CAGR. You know, that's the projected, right? Between 20, 20, 25. I imagine that functional foods, you know, functional attributes, functional ingredients is going to explode, particularly as it relates to immune function. So how are you supporting people? Because like, just look, just look at the news. Look at all the headlines, like immunocompromised, um, depressed immune system, um, uh, uh, supporting one's immune system. Like I can't remember a time in my 20-year career where this has been part of the zeitgeist, the, the, the discussion around supporting one's immune system, aside from you know, the flu shot or aside from you know, exercise. Um, this is a broad part of the conversation in the zeitgeist right now. And so if I'm a big brand, I'm thinking about, okay, so if immune support is going to be almost table stakes, how do I ensure that, that my product innovation and my innovation pipeline is ready with those types of attributes and benefits? Mm-hmm. That is uh, a super interesting idea. And I've heard this a couple times, actually, in, in conversations I've had in the marketing space as well and ad space, that wellness, health sector, however you want to kind of categorize it, could, uh, I mean, is expected, I should say, probably to explode over the next couple of years. And um, things like marketing towards uh, healthy immune systems and things and conversations that are not even really necessarily being had with your doctor all the time. It's just such an interesting potential shift in the way we look at food and health in general. And uh, there's, just, there's, it's going to be super interesting to see how that plant, that kind of rolls out. Yeah. I'd say there's a, there's a couple really interesting weak signals out there right now around that notion and the, and the role that grocery retailers in particular can play. I mean, mm-hmm. Kroger um, is, a really good uh, uh, market leader in a number of ways, not only their their economic performance, but just from a community standpoint, they've started a couple programs which are really interesting. One is they have this broad agenda around food as medicine that they've announced this isn't this isn't me disclosing anything proprietary. And they have pharmacists. So they have pharmacies in a lot of Kroger's in, in America. Hmm. And they have pharmacists in these in these pharmacy channels. And so right now they're using some of that, or, or they were. I mean, it's not necessarily the case because no one's shopping in store now, but they right. had this program where people were pharmacists were writing prescriptions for food. So imagine you come in with, uh, you know, a broad spectrum antibiotic in America, they call it the Z pack. Um, I don't know if we have that up here in Canada, but uh, that is going to destroy the probiotics in your gut. And so could you see a scenario where they're like, Oh yeah, I'll fulfill that order for Z pack. But here's also a script for, uh, foods that are actually going to build the probiotics back up. So your, yo- your, you know, your, your yogurts, um, you know, anything that's going to have probiotics in it, right? That's an interesting uh, weak signal as to the role that food is going to play in, in broader wellness. And I think in driving broader immune function, um, where, where it wasn't necessarily part of a conversation, unless you were working with what is kind of called an alternative, an alternative health practitioner, like an, a natural path or a functional medicine doctor, right? Often it's cut down on your fats, your, your blood pressure's up, uh, you know, but beyond that, like you're not having a conversation around diet with your, your healthcare provider. Right. And I think that's going to shift, man. It has yeah. to shift because food, yeah. at least from my perspective, I have a bias. Food is the foundation for everything. Right. Mark, Mark Hyman is one of the thought leaders in this space. He's a, a foremost kind of expert in functional medicine. 
And he talks about it in terms of like, it's like food is like the operating system and you plug that code into your body. And depending on how uh, nutrient dense that is, that'll determine the function of everything, of all of your cells, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. It seems like that looking at food is more of a wellness decision and fuel for your body and just like physical and mental health and all that has been kind of picking up some steam over the last couple of years. And mm-hmm. I wonder if, uh, if this is just going to kind of push the gas on that a little bit as well. My, uh, my, you know, I'm, I try not to be a prognosticator because I think everyone right now is a armchair prognosticator. Everyone's got a view of the future. We happen yeah. to have a, a core discipline around strategic foresight. So I think we're somewhat equipped, but you know, anything that's supporting broad immune function, you know, I've, I've been toying with this notion of like radical immunity and here's, here's why. I remember very definitively in 2008, 2009, um, in, in the financial kind of services markets, right? I was, I was doing a little bit of work there where before the crash, before the economic downturn, most people were in a binary between having, you're managing all your own money, right? You're, you've got your own investment accounts and, and you're a day trader or you're managing your own money or you're having someone do it for you. And it was two ends of a spectrum, right? This binary of like, I do it or you do it for me. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the crash happens. And now there's this whole spectrum of do a little bit for me, partner with me, listen to me. And then there's this whole kind of gray area between I do it or you do it. Yeah. And I think the same is true. I look at that as the analog for what's going to happen with people's health. Right now we outsource our health to experts by and large, right? Be that, um, uh, you know, your, your HCPs, be that specialists, but we outsource our health, right? I'm sick. I go, you help me, you know, give me a medicine to make me feel better. Perhaps, right, because of COVID-19, perhaps because of people having more time to think about it, um, we're going to see more people take their health into their own hands. Not entirely, because I'm not suggesting that people are doctors and have the same qualifications. I mean, you can't replicate years of study and an intimate knowledge of biology for armchair science, right? Right. What I am saying is more people will become more aware of what they ought to be doing to support their health, to support their HCPs. How do I lower my blood pressure by eating certain foods? How do I think about supporting immune system? How do I eat for better sleep? You know, how do I eat for slowing down the aging process, right? These are all things that food can do, um, but we're not aware of that. And so coming back to that analog, the how do I take more control, more responsibility for my health and what I eat and the health of my family? Well, food is the answer. And so how do people start to leverage some of this in their day-to-day wellness journey? How do I partner with my grocery delivery people? How do I partner with, uh, you know, a food co-op, a farmer, a um, you know, uh, a brand to, to help me on my broader wellness journey. Yeah, that's a huge change for, um, or at least shift, I shouldn't say change, shift in strategy for the larger food and beverage companies in not only just innovating in the actual products, but also, I, I guess, in the marketing strategy. And do you become more of an advisor instead of a consumer goods marketing company? It's a uh, really you, good question. Man. Right, it's, man. Yeah, I mean, what role are you playing in, in someone's broad kind of wellness or, or, or journey for greater well-being, right? Mm-hmm. What is the role of a brand? What is the role of a grocery store? What is the role of, you know, a food distributor like a Gordon Foods or a Cisco, 
right? Um, and you know, if we think about the businesses right now that are that are, are struggling the most, what is the role of a restaurant? Yeah. Um, if if dine in is no longer going to be a dominant model, at least for the foregoing you know eighteen months, well, what is the role of a restaurant? You certainly saw a lot of investment in the dark kitchen or cloud kitchen space prior to COVID nineteen. Is that going to become the dominant model? You know, where we're going to exacerbate, we're going to accelerate the shift from you know dining in to ordering online. You know, there's a Barclays did a study that said. Right now, it's it's at about two to th- or was before COVID. That, you know, online ordering and fulfillment through the Uber Eats and the Foodoras of the world was about two to three percent of all restaurant eating. They projected it could be as high as tw- as forty percent by twenty twenty five. Now we've accelerated that. Now it's a hundred percent, right? But what's the how what what's the kind of regression to the mean um, in terms of of dining uh, or or of ordering out? when we're allowed to go back to restaurants? And then what's the role of a dark kitchen relative to a more conventional restaurant? Um, you know, I, I think about those types of services and those types of ecosystems more than I think about more conventional kind of brands right now, because the route to market, that last mile is really where things have fallen down, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the restaurant world and this like integration of physical and virtual spaces is so interesting to me because uh, you know, I've heard in the in the past, restaurant entrepreneurs complain about uh, physical footprints. You know, my revenue is really tied to my physical footprint. Like, I, I, as successful as I am, I can't drive more sales than the people that I can fit in the room. And now right. you're having this scenario where you're forced in the complete opposite direction. And uh, very early on, like I think it was like the first week, first or second week that we we're in self isolation. There's a, a restaurant that I'm a huge fan of. Uh, and I went, well, we were, my fiance and I were like, well, you know, we can't go out. So let's go and get some takeout from this place mm-hmm. that we love and just like have a night in. So I went through the process, ordered it, um, you know, straight up from the beginning. They're like, it's an hour wait at least. So I was like, oh yeah, it's cool. Like as long as I, you know, the communication's there. And then when I, when I actually showed up there, I was you know, everyone's kind of taking turns to go into the restaurant one at a time to get their food. And I was just having a conversation. I was like, how's business going for you guys? Because this must be a super challenging time. And they're like, well, it's going okay because of the uh, takeout and delivery, but we just have no systems in process. We have no processes or systems in place to actually be able to efficiently deliver and produce stuff in this new kind of supply chain. And, uh, it's so interesting to me because I think there's there's got to be a model where you know there's a way to kind of increase your capacity virtually even when we're back in this physical space of going to restaurants and bars and stuff like that and and I think some of these processes that are being worked out right now are going to be really interesting to see how they get refined over the next like year, year and a half, two year mark kind of thing. I think you're spot on. One of my hypotheses really early on in designing, you know, recipe for tomorrow was that all things being equal, the company who has a greater acuity for operations wins. Cause at the end of the day, right. Um, ideas are abundant. Yeah execution is not and the ability to execute profitably. And so that's why we are really heavy on operational know-how and operational experience for those exact reasons. Because when you get into the how, that's where 
ideas really fall apart when you're making those trade-offs, right? About like, oh, how do we how, how do we do this? We 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 have this phrase that we say, you know, make sure that you uh, you save the magic in the mess. So, you know, make sure you obsess about what's magical about an uh, an experience or a brand or a product first, so that you can make sure that that stays that stays sacrosanct as you're making those trade-off decisions. Because it's natural, right? When you're thinking about the commercialization of anything, service, product, brand, experience, there's trade-offs. Yeah. Um, and if you haven't obsessed about the magic and waded through that mess to get to that nugget of magic, then you're going to cost reduce it. And if you've cost reduced the magic, well, then you don't have anything. And so totally. we really obsess about operations because of that, because of now we're in like, you know, some of what we're trying to provide our, our customers and our clients and our partners right now is just like, Hey, use this as your SWAT team to solve challenging issues. It doesn't have to be innovation. Like, cause if you can solve, you know, ambiguous innovation challenges from an operational standpoint, you can solve run the business challenges because they're very similar. Totally. What are your, what are your capabilities? What are your assets? What is your know-how? What are your processes? All right, let's get in and see how we can help. So your restaurant analog is perfect. Like, Hey shit, we don't like, yeah, we've got like a dozen takeout containers at any one time because we do so little takeout and it's, and even portion sizing, like oh, yeah, there's, there's this little known thing. And I, I hope I'm not giving too much away, but like, like the restaurants you love, you're always getting greater value when you're taking out a thousand percent because a, like <laughs> on a plate, when you can doll it up, it looks really beautiful in a, in a tin takeout container where it's one piece of fish and a little sauce. It doesn't look very impressive. Yeah. And chefs will always add more portion, right? And food. So, so there's like issues of food cost and issues of, of like that. So sorry, restaurants, if you're listening, I'm not trying to give away any secrets, but that was, that's a truism, man. <laughs> but how do you even like, even fulfilling these orders in your physical footprint? Because there's no staging area oftentimes. Totally, totally. And uh, yeah, even just the roles, right? Like one person ordering, one person processing payments, one person cooking, who's being the connection between all those pieces. How are you delivering it to people? It's just like, it's yeah, fascinating. Like who's, who's like one person playing security, you know, one totally. person procuring masks and, and PPE, totally. right? Like you totally. got these, these issues that we've never had to contend with at scale before. Yeah. I think because of the space that we come from, which is, you know, a lot of the channel, a big part of going digital is, uh, taking processes and applying them in a new context and building brand new processes and looking at old processes. So this stuff's all, I always find super fascinating and pretty exciting because it's just, um, it's creative work as well. I think, you know, creating a process and trying to make something efficient, managing an operation, I think is a, is cr quite creative. I would, I would a hundred percent agree. Um, you know, one of the things that we obsess about, because I mean, at the end of the day, most of our work is product. Like a lot of like we're, we're, you know, we are, you know, we work with fortune five fortune 1000 companies, helping them create their innovation pipelines of product most often or startups with product. But what we think about it in terms of broader experience, and I know experience is the thing that everyone talks about, but you know, I've, I've practiced service design for 20 years. The design of a product is exactly the same as the design of a service because you have to think about the system that enables it, the whole system. And so there's the, you know, I think about like the tip of the iceberg is like what you as a consumer or end user interact with 
right? Which is a, such a small part of the giant iceberg underneath that, mm. that kind of level of visibility, right? Like all that stuff that underpins it. What's the systems of record, the systems of delivery, the systems of, of you know, all systems that underpin this beautiful, elegant experience. When we're thinking about a product, we're thinking about all those things and we come at it really from a service design perspective because it, those questions need to be answered. Better to answer them up front than get to fall in love with an idea only to realize that, oh shit, we can't actually make it and we can't make it for a cost. And, oh man, that piece of machinery, that there's only one of those in the whole world, right? Like we try to think about it up front yeah, and, or, use a service, and use a service design mentality of like, okay, so what is the customer experience yeah, of totally. this new product? How do you find it? How do you learn about it? How do you trial it? How do you tell people about it? How do you kind of go back to the, like, what are all those touch points and making sure you're obsessing about those details? Because if you're not obsessing about them as a brand, you can be damn sure that someone who's a bit more nimble is. Yeah, for sure. And uh, that iceberg um, analogy is amazing because even, you know, from that tip of the iceberg, if there's a crack anywhere and the tip of the iceberg is the customer experience and it looks nice and uh, your first reaction is that it's going to be a pleasant experience, but there's a crack somewhere that's maybe functional or anything like that, the whole thing falls apart for, for the customer. What I wonder is at what point do our expectations change because we're, we're in this isolation for a lot longer than anyone assumed, right? So right now it's like, I'm super happy to have groceries. I'm super happy to like not be endangering myself, my family to go and get those groceries. But at what point am I going to be dissatisfied with the experience of getting those groceries? And now I recognize that that comes from a point of privilege because we can still afford to feed our families. And I'm not naive to that fact, but I'm, I'm curious at what point we'll be asking more of these experiences, be it, you know, order online pickup, um, you know, in person, um, whereby service design becomes more integral to, to ultimately, you know, profitability and long-term kind of competitive advantage. Yeah. If you're playing yeah. this like takeout restaurant game, then how do you like, what are the, what are the vectors of, of competition then faster, maybe more affordable. Yeah. Uh, safe now. Yeah. I mean, food safety has always been a thing, but like shit, like content, how many people are touching this thing before it goes out the door? Like, am I going to have to Lysol wipe the shit out of everything I bring into my house for the next 18 months? Yeah. Good for Lysol. Shit for the environment. <laughs> um, I also think about the changing customer experience in the kind of grocery, grocery world, too. It's like within a week or two now, you know, you can't even go to any of the big box stores without being limited to the amount of people within the store, right? So, like, the customer experience is changing so fast. And then you also have the smaller kind of market fruit and veg stores that are they're pretty wide open. Like there's no lineups for them. There's no, so yeah. there's just so many things changing on so many different dynamics. And it's just like interesting to see how, uh, how fast this change is happening right now. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very few businesses, if any, were prepared. Yeah, which, for sure. Which, you know, I, of course, I've got a bias here because it's part of our stock and trade, but the investment in future proofing your business model 
in future-proofing your operations. It's always been, you know, innovation's always existed tomorrow. It never exists today. And so you're thinking about like the needs tomorrow. But I think that same level of scrutiny needs to be placed on the business as a whole. Are your supply chains future-proofed? Is your strategy future-proofed? And that's yeah. why, you know, we've invested in strategic foresight as the way to help us do that. Like, how do we make sense of some of the critical uncertainties and, you know, define what would need to be true for something to succeed or fail? And, you know, futurists and foresight strategists used to like, they, they, like, they use these terms called, um, you know, future worlds, right, uh, or scenarios. And so what are the different worlds and how do you make sure that you're wargaming your strategy or your tactics against multiple different scenarios? I think one of the failings of deductive reasoning, and I'm a big fan because I'm, I'm kind of, I play in both worlds, is it assumes by looking at historical uh, facts, you can project, a, you know, project those forward into the future. I mean, listen, man, I, I'm not sitting on a billion here. And if that were true, we would have all been much more wealthy. We would have all been prepared for this. Mm -hmm. Looking at historical data and projecting that forward is, 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 it certainly makes us feel better, but it's, it's not an accurate way to think about the future. So, you know, we are being asked more and more to help people on more tactical things when it comes to foresight. Like, how do you help us prepare for the next month? What are the things we should be kind of looking for, thinking about? And then what are the leading indicators as to when it's time to invest in one set of tactics versus another set of tactics? And I think that's, you know, you can look at those as tripwires. You can look at those as like little early signals in the market as to which way that it's going to go, left, right, center. Yeah. Um, but that's a lot. That's actually uh, the majority of what we're spending our time doing right now for our clients is helping them think through these things from a supply chain standpoint, from an operation standpoint, from just a, like, a, like a finance standpoint, and ultimately from a kind of product innovation standpoint. Yeah, that's a good point because um, I think we overlap in some spaces as well. I mean, we, do, we don't do much work in the food and uh, beverage industry, but we are also in the future-proofing space, but more mm -hmm. where technology applies to um, a solution. Yeah, but that's a great point about um, future proofing, you know, things like operations, future proofing your finances, like what is future proofing of finances or a finance strategy look like? Maybe it's more about, you know, how much you're putting away for the kind of slush fund emergency fund. Maybe you don't have an emergency fund, but maybe that's part of the future proofing that you need to be able to do as an organization is to start building out these scenarios that are like, OK, well. You know, how much do I need in case of an emergency or even just logistics and supply chain? Like, What is our busiest time? What does our supply chain look like when we 10x that? What are we missing? Well, we, we I'm not the first to say this and I'm not going to be the last, but the just in time economy has been has been shown to be a fallacy through this. And the reason for that is. If you're, if you're reliant on a global supply chain, then you're reliant on a set of assumptions that that global supply chain will stay intact. And you're not, you're, you don't have strategic supply. And, and PPE and masks and gloves are kind of a really good example of just that, right? Where for, for years, and in my industry as you know, innovation management or innovation consulting or, or consulting in general is guilty of working with C-suites and boards on two strategies that have led to this. One is divestiture. So vertical integration is costly. And so divest yourself of, you know, manufacturing assets, you know, outsource those. That's one. And the second is cost cutting. 
make sure that that you know you're increasing your your margins and you're removing as much cost from the business and so you've got outsourcers you've got all these other um, support businesses that then help you in R&D and supply in IT and all these things and that's a failing of modern management consulting I think right and that it's like no 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 don't worry you'll be more profitable if you cut if you cut out a lot of costs cut out the fat as it were yeah. right and divest in the making of things and 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 in having inventory you don't want inventory on your books because you know it, it's depreciating well what if right now we're in a what if scenario where if we don't have inventory, right? Even the national government, whether that's Canada or in America, okay. has very little strategic supply of critical things. Yeah, um, food being one of those. So, have we kind of cost reduced ourselves into this scenario? I'd say we 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 have, right? And so, how do we rethink about this just in time piece? You know, so that we are more more uh, resilient and we've got a little bit more fat on the bone as it were. And I, I, I say fat, you know, pejoratively in that it's more about like cash. Yeah. How do you have the supplies, the resources uh, to ensure that you can withstand a bit uh, more turbulence? Because right now, a lot of these businesses were really lean. And that, that being too super lean when you don't have enough to eat comes back, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole range of scenarios that could cause problems if you're running like that. Now, I should say that I'm not trying to take a pot shot at management consulting. Like that was the prevent that was prevailing wisdom. Like yeah. that's how you kind of manage, you know, this idea of the primacy of shareholder value. That's how you return, um, you know, return on capital, return on investment as you remove cost and yeah. you streamline inventory and you make sure that you're not holding too much fat and you're, you know, stock buybacks and things of that nature. Yeah. And, and even philosophies and um, approaches, evolve and change over time no matter what as well right that's just another another piece of the puzzle um well i think now had a really interesting point like i've certainly had more time to think philosophically or like you know i i was very fortunate to leave a, a company that was sold and so had a bit of runway and had some time you know it's the first time in my professional career and so i had about six months to really think about what i wanted to do mm-hmm. but given we've got now we've had more time to really think about like what is value how am I creating value for my family first, for my community second, for you know my clients and partners third? And, and what does that value look like long term? What are the business models? What are the partnership models? What are the kind of, you know, is is you know one of the things we're going we're working towards right now is is B Corp certification because you know the questions of like what does value mean? We're we're kind of foremost if we we can't say we're making food better and making better food if we don't have a proof point right. Part of it is our business model and part of it is like trying to get B Corp certification so that we know that we are indeed putting a group of stakeholders um, at the forefront, not just shareholders, right? Yeah, cool. That's really interesting. I'm curious to hear how that process goes. It's ambiguous and it's labyrinthum because it hasn't necessarily flattened out, but there are phenomenal consultants. We are, we've worked with one to help us through that. Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, I, I think we're up for time, but um, I really enjoyed this conversation. That was great. It was really, really awesome to um, get some of your insights. Thanks, man. I appreciate you uh, spending the time. I know you have client, uh, you know, client work and partnerships, but I really appreciate you reaching out and, and uh, allowing me to uh, to talk about things that I'm passionate about. It was great. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. 